We want to thank AFB International for sponsoring this podcast. AFB is the premier supplier of palatins to pet food companies worldwide, offering off-the-shelf and custom solutions that make pet food, treats, and supplements taste great. Hello and welcome to Trending Pet Food, the industry podcast where we cover all the latest hot topics and trends in pet food. I'm your host and editor of Pet Food Industry Magazine, Lindsay Beaton, and I'm here today with David Allison, Global Values Leader, Human Behavior Expert, and founder of the Value Graphics Project. Hi, David, and welcome. Thanks for having me over. I like your spare bedroom. It's nice here. (laughs) (laughs) In case you're not familiar with David or the Value Graphics Project, here's what you need to know. After decades in marketing, David recognized that demographics weren't working. Gender roles are blurring, age has nothing to do with how people behave, and incomes don't change what's in people's hearts. It's values that drive behavior. So he launched the Value Graphics Project to create the first accurate inventory of core human values for everyone on Earth. After 750,000 surveys in 152 languages, the project has resulted in a complete directory of human decision-making, And innovative organizations like PayPal, Lululemon, and the United Nations Foundation are connecting with people in new, more profound ways by honoring what they value. From deep inside the data, David brings a clear and powerful truth to transform the way we work and the world we live in. David Allison is our opening keynote speaker at Pet Food Forum 2023, being held at the beginning of May, and he'll be speaking on what value graphics can tell you about your pet food consumers, where he'll share the common core values of pet owners based on an exclusive survey conducted for Pet Food Forum. As a preview to this, as well as to gain more insights into the idea of value graphics at large, I brought David on today to answer this question. How can we gain new insights into what makes pet food consumers tick? Now, David, I want to start out by giving our audience an idea of the difference between more traditional consumer demographics and the data you gather and analyze. How did value graphics come to be and what are some of the fundamental differences that you decided to focus on when you started this project? Okay, that's two questions wrapped up in one. We'll start with how did value graphics come to be? So I was in marketing for a very, very long time, had a big successful marketing firm, in fact. And I noticed the same thing happening every single time we did something for a client. And this applies to human resources. It applies to product development. It applies to marketing, branding. It doesn't everything, right? We always start in a room with a bunch of people and we sit around and say, okay, who are we doing this for? And we try and describe the target audience as best we can. So we would do this in the work that I was doing. And my company happened to be in the business of helping real estate developers with large-scale condominium projects and resort projects and stuff like that all the way around the world. And so what was cool about that is those things have a beginning and a middle and an end. So we would figure out who we're doing it for. We'd go spend a million bucks trying to talk to those people, get them to buy condos or resort homes, whatever. And then within two years, I was in a room with them and I could look around and go, oh, here's who showed up. Who showed up and who we spent a million dollars talking to didn't match. Who are these people in the room? What are they doing here? Maybe 10 or 15% of the people in the room actually matched the target audience description, the demographics and the psychographics about those folks. And the rest of them, well, it was a big mystery. And so I set out to see if I could solve that because that seemed like a big fail. If we're spending a million bucks and only 10 or 15% of it's actually producing results, where's all that other money? And forget the money, the effort and the time. And why were they here? So that took me down this path of looking into behavioral science, because after all, it's just trying to figure out how do people decide to be in that room? And metaphorically speaking, how do people decide to buy stuff? How do people decide to do anything? And you start digging deep, which I'll unpack at my keynote, but it basically comes down to this. 
human brains are hardwired in only one way. There's only one thing we use in order to make decisions about everything in our lives all day long, 24 seven, tiny little things you don't even know you're doing and the big giant decisions too. And that's our values. There's a piece of our brain that's responsible for this. And it uses values as a way to decide whether we're going to choose door A or door B in every situation. So Eureka, this was the moment. I thought, let's go figure this out. If we could understand the values of people, then we could stop these terrible percentages. The reason all those people were in the room, back to my origin story, they were all there because they had some set of values that led them there. We just didn't know that's what we were doing. We just lucked out and we got those extra 80% to show up by saying something that responded to some values. And they were like, ah, that's the place for me. Here we go. So I started looking around and realized there was no way to understand the values of a large group of people, like a target audience for something in advance. You can talk to them after they've done a thing and go, what are your values? But to know in advance when we need to know, because we're spending the money to get them to do something, it wasn't a tool. So that's what we built. We built the Value Graphics database. We launched the Value Graphics project and we built the Value Graphics database. And it's the first segmentable values-driven data resource that can help us understand the shared values of any target audience for anything anywhere on earth. So now we can look at a group of people who are going to buy pet food and say, it doesn't matter whether they're 18 to 24, 25 to 36, 37 to 45. That doesn't matter. Boomers, millennials, men, women, rich, poor, black, white, green, purple, gay, straight. None of that matters. What matters is some values are going to get these folks to say, that's the pet food I'm going to buy for my pet. And if we know what those are, then pet food manufacturers can just speak into those values and say, this is the one for you, my friend. This is the one that you should choose. Making such a huge shift in how you look at people and survey people sounds like an incredibly tall order. <laughs> Who did you even talk to to start figuring out how to properly survey people about their values? Because I can imagine that there might be some people who might not tell the truth. Oh, about yeah. that kind of thing because it's People a very will lie like crazy about this stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Who did you talk to to even construct a survey that would ask the questions in a way that you could build a reliable database on something that's as deeply personal and internal as somebody's value structure? Yeah, no, great question. And it's true. If you put a room full of people together and say, who thinks family is important? They're all going to say yes, even if they hate their family. Who thinks the environment is important? Who's going to say no to that? Values are a really hard thing to get people to answer and talk to you about if you ask them about them directly. So the first thing to know is we never ask anybody directly. We ask them about stuff that's going on in their life and about how they're behaving and what's going on and what is important to them and all that sort of stuff. So here's an example. Let's say I'm from Canada. So I like to use this as an example. If we knew that you were a hockey fan because on your Facebook page, you're talking about hockey a bunch, then we'd throw up an invitation to be part of a study on hockey fans. Say, hey, we know you're the biggest hockey fan in the world. Would you give us a couple of minutes and give us your expert opinion? Now you ask someone for their expert opinion on things that they're excited about, and they're going to just be thrilled that someone's recognized how experty they are, and they're going to just dive right in. And they did. 750,000 people dove right in and helped us understand the things that were important in their life. So hockey, that person would have had a series of questions, something like this. So you're a hockey fan. If your team get kicked out of the series of the second game of the season, would you cheer for a different team? No? Oh, Okay. Do you watch games with your friends, your family, your coworkers? Do you travel for games? Do you watch them at home in the living room? 
What are you wearing when you watch games? Are you like in your sweats or are you wearing a jersey? Do you have a couple jerseys? Do you drink? How much do you drink? Have you ever gone to a game, an away game? Which ones do you prefer? They're having the time of their lives telling us about hockey and being a hockey fan. But what they're really telling us about is loyalty and family and relationships and some of these other core issues that are driving the decisions around this thing that's very important to them. Now you ask 750,000 people those same kinds of questions around the world, and guess what? Humans aren't all that different. Patterns start to emerge. You start to see a whole lot of people whose biggest things in their life are influenced by their family. And so you didn't have to ask who thinks family is important because they told you what was important in their life. And if what was important in their life involves their family and 300,000 people around the world say the same sort of thing, you start to see some patterns in the noise. So I often tell the story this way. It's like Halloween. When your kid comes home from Halloween with a pillowcase full of candy, which they used to do, I guess these days we don't do that so much anymore because stranger danger and all that kind of stuff. But you used to come home when I was a kid, you come home with a pillowcase full of candy and you dump it out on the dining room table and you stand there. And the fun part for me anyway, was always sorting it out. You put it in piles. You're like, okay, we got chocolate bars. Yay. I love those houses. I wish I could remember where they came from. And you got the lollipops and the bubble gum and the single wrapped candies with that orange and black paper that tasted like, I don't know what those were, but we had those. And so the data tells you how to organize itself. We looked at 750,000 people telling us stuff about what was going on in their lives and what was important and how they were behaving and what their emotions were around all these different topic areas. We dumped it all on the dining room table. And the data told us that there was 56 piles, 56 piles of candy. And those are the 56 values that rule everything that everybody on earth does. Because those 750,000 people, they just weren't random. We collected those in a way that's referred to as a random stratified statistically representative sample of the population of 180 countries around the world. So it's basically a miniaturized model of the planet and all the people who live on it. And so the data that we pull from those people answering those questions, you can extrapolate that. And it's true for the entire population. Now, here's the key. Those piles of candy, there's 56 values in the value graphics database. Each is a pile of candy, but the candies aren't all the same, right? The pile of chocolate bars, lots of different chocolate bars in there. So let me give you an example. One value, very important in the United States and in many countries, not all uniformly, but in the United States is the number one most important value is belonging. And there's 192 kinds of belonging in that pile of chocolate bars. And we've coded every one of them. So when we extract a profile for pet food shoppers, like I've done for this keynote, I'll be doing at the pet food forum. We're going to be able to say, here's the exact kind of chocolate bar in that pile that we call belonging. If belonging is one of the values that shows up as being important for people who buy pet food. So that's the data question. This is a good moment to talk about demographics and psychographics, because those are the other ways we look at humans, right? We think about this as a three-legged stool. You got to be on three legs to be sturdy. If you only have two legs, you're on a tippy surface and it's not a really great way to go and spend a bunch of money and do your marketing, branding, product development, whatever it is you're doing. So demographics, they still have a place. We still need to be able to put a fence around a group of people. I'll go back to my real estate days and say, you know, I'm selling penthouse condominiums in downtown Gotham City. It's not going to sell to 16 year olds who work at the grocery store. It's pretty clear who's buying a $5 million penthouse on the top of a building. But to think that then we understand who those people are is wrong. All we know is what they are. We know that they make a certain amount of money, they're married, and they probably are empty nesters and blah, blah, blah. But those people aren't all the same as each other. 
no more than any group of people are the same as each other when you put them in demographic piles. And in fact, one of the things we've learned from all these surveys we've done, this giant database we've built, is that people within a demographic cohort, a cluster, only resemble each other on the values that they use to drive their lives about 10.5% across the board. So Gen Z and boomers and men, women, people who are in this much money or that much money, black, white, gay, straight, educated, uneducated, all those different labels, those demographic labels, the people within them on average are 10.5% similar. So if you spend a buck talking to a target audience of Gen Z who earn $75,000 a year in the beginning stages of their white collar career with a college education and they're single, that's a whole bunch of groups that resemble each other about 10.5% of the time piled on top of each other into a bigger group that resembles each other about 10.5% of the time. And then we have a 90% built-in fail rate in everything we do to chase that group of people. 90% fail. So this is why we get so excited when a direct marketing campaign gives us a 3% return. Like, oh my God, 3% of the people open that email. Woo, pop the champagne corks. My friends, that's a 97% fail because we're using the wrong way to look at people. It's not a thing to celebrate. That's a failure of epic proportions. You've just wasted 97% of your money, your time, your effort, your resources, your brain cells trying to talk to a group of people. You got 3% of them to say yes. That's terrible. So let's stop celebrating that and figure out what's wrong. What's wrong is we're using the wrong way to look at people. We're putting them in groups of people that don't resemble each other and then throwing one message in there and hoping some of it sticks. And yeah, some of it's going to stick, 3%, 4%. Here's another stat that's even more alarming. So only 10.5% similarity within a demographic cohort. All of us around the world, everybody who's alive today, just because we're human, if we look and see how often do we agree with each other on all of those values that we use to make every decision in our life. We agree with each other just by virtue of being human and awake and upright and breathing 8% of the time. So the delta between the two is two and a half percent. It's two and a half percent more accurate to use demographics to understand and target an audience than it is to just say whatever the heck pops into your head and not worry about it at all. Because everybody as a human gives you an 8% ROI. You get a 10 and a half percent ROI on average for a demographic group. It's basically a wash. We got a 3.5% level of accuracy plus or minus in our database. So you include that. Yeah, we're at zero. You may as well just say anything at all. And it's going to be as accurate as using demographics to understand a group of people. So demographics still necessary. Got to put a fence around them. We're going to try and sell to penthouse condominiums to, you know, wealthy baby boomers who are selling their single family home in the suburbs or something like that. But they're not all the same as each other. You also got to understand what's in their hearts, not just what they look like on the outside. So the other whole bucket of data we like to look at is a whole whack of different stuff that I'm just going to call psychographics. And this is what people's emotions are and their brand index preferences and their likes and their dislikes and their click studies on websites and how often do they fill their shopping cart and, and then, you know, everything, all the other stuff that's out there. It's all cool. I think we kind of gone a little overboard with a bunch of it. Frankly, somebody sent a memo out like 10 years ago and said, that is the new gold. And everybody just start running around collecting data. And I can't tell you how many boardrooms I go into now where the group I'm working with is just like paralyzed because there's too much data and they don't know what to do. Like, ah, we don't want to make the wrong decision. Data paralysis is a real, is a real thing. But if you look at that data, you can kind of get a sense of some patterns. These people tend to behave these ways. So you've got a demographic definition of what some people are, and you can see how they've kind of behaved in the past. Let's take it back to pet food. 
they buy three cans of premium dog food. We kind of know some stuff about them. The problem with all that data is it's all from exactly the same place, which is the past, because we know it. We wrote it down. Even if it happened two seconds ago, it's historical. So we have demographics as a describer, and we have psychographics as a historic record. But what we're all trying to do is influence the next thing that happens, the future. We're not looking in the rearview mirror. We're looking out the front of the car. And in order to do that, you need to know how your group of people that you've defined demographically and know a few things about psychographically, how they're going to make their next decision. And that's going to be about their values. So if you have all three of those, demographics, psychographics, value graphics, you know what they are, what they've done, and what they'll do next. And now you're ready to go. Now you can start spending the million dollars and designing a new product or figuring out how you're going to talk about the ones you already have or how you need to hire people. What's your sales team language and pathing? What's the customer journey? What's the UX on your website? What presents do you send out at the holidays to your best client? I mean, everything can be answered if you go back and you understand your target audience's heart and not use demographic stereotypes to try and understand people. I think this is probably going to speak to a lot of people in the industry because there has been a significant shift in the way consumers want to be interacted with overall. I've mentioned this before and written about it in the magazine that pet food used to be very transactional, right? You make a pet food, I buy your pet food, I give it to my pet, the end. And now consumers at large, not just in the pet food industry, but in many industries, want to know more about the brands that they're putting their money towards. Mm -hmm. And they want to know the story and they want something that aligns with their values. So I can see this being an incredibly valuable thing to add to your toolbox when you're trying to figure out who your audience is, who you want to sell to, where you're trying to go. But I can also hear all the poor marketers out there going, oh no, another data set, please help. <laughs> what have you seen as the most successful way for companies to integrate this new data set into their existing things so they don't feel like they're just tossing out years of demographic data and tossing away oh, all the psychographics? And how can you <laughs> integrate everything so that you're not staring at three piles of data sets desperately trying to figure out where the alignment is and what you're supposed to do with all of it. Okay. Let me answer that question, but I want to start by responding to something you said as part of your question, which is this change in the way consumers are interacting with these brands and with all kinds of things. You're very prescient because what's going on right now is after COVID, where we all had some time to sit at home and think about what's most important in our lives, we are behaving in ways that are more aligned with our values than they've ever been before. Values have always driven human behaviors and emotions. This is just a biological fact. But what's happened is because of COVID, we all had to go through a thing together. We all did one thing in some various kinds of ways. We all dealt with this global issue. Maybe the last time something like this happened was World War II. A huge global thing happened. And then everybody's responding to that huge global thing. So we're all able to sit around as organizations and go, wow, people are behaving based on their values. Because there's a whole bunch of people responding all at the same time to one thing. In fact, we've always been doing this. It's just been little groups of people behaving in different kinds of ways to the little things that were happening in their lives. 
This is the biggest sociological experiment in history. We've all just been put into an experiment. Here's a thing that happened. Now, what are you guys all going to do? And we can all sit back and watch and see what's going on. Values are the most powerful force on earth. Full stop, bar none. There is no question. They drive everything we do. So everything we see on the news today, from social change issues to the future of leadership, the future of work. Are we going back to work or aren't we? Let's talk about that one for a moment. We're going back to work or aren't we? That's people with different sets of values saying, I don't want to, or I, of course we have to, or let's do something in the middle. That's our values speaking on our behalf and saying, this is how I want my life to go. Let's talk about consumerism. I can go on about any single topic you want, but they all come back to people and people are all about their values. So consumerism. The tale of two companies. Let's look at Twitter. There's a little organization under new management, we can say, and we're seeing values disrespected on all fronts. The staff is in revolt. The consumers, the users are having a hard time. The advertisers are running away. There's a dumpster fire there because values are being absolutely disregarded by the new management team of one person. So then you go to another company as an example and look at Patagonia. I know we're all sick and tired of listening to stories about how amazing they are, but over the course of their decades of existence, they figured out what the values are of that organization and they played right into those values. And now we all look at them and go, wow, how smart are they? Look, they're a values-driven organization right up to the point where Schrenard stands up and says, I don't need any more money. Just take my company and use it to save the planet. Mic drop, you know, biggest single values-driven mic drop in the history of values. And imagine the next morning waking up, if you're the vice president of marketing for North Face, you'd just be like, oh, damn, now what do I do? Those people are never not going to buy Patagonia ever again. They are cemented. There's no stealing share anymore, Mr. North Face. It's not going to happen. You got to figure out something that you got to go stand for and get the folks who are interested in those values to follow you. So I will go as far as this. We are in an entirely new economic era. We've left the sharing economy, the gig economy, the experience. We are in the values economy now. And everything that consumers are doing, including the way they're reacting to pet food companies, is about their values. So a pet food company that doesn't have an answer isn't purpose-driven which is all about determining which values are important and then driving in that direction, you're in trouble. Values washing is a real thing. You could get called out if you fake this. You just stand up and say, our values are environmentalism, collaboration, creativity, and uh, diversity, because we think that's what you want us to say. We better not be doing that. We're going to get called out. So here's data that can help us determine really what are the values that are driving people forward. So your question was, how do we integrate that? Well, first you got to get it. And if you're coming to the Pet Food Forum, you're very lucky because I'm going to stand up on stage and tell you all the things you need to know about the values of pet food decision makers. So the folks in the stores or online, how are they deciding which brand they're going to buy? What are the values they're using to evaluate choice A and choice B? I'm also going to give you a set of tools and techniques you can use to find ways to use that information to build your strategies around innovation. What's the next thing we should launch and what should it be about? What the trends are that everybody's watching right now? How do you pick which one to hit your wagon to? How do you decide how to take the current product that you have and tweak the positioning and the branding just a little bit so it's aligning with these values that I'm going to give you when I'm on stage? Let me give you a fun example about that. One of the things we collect when we do all this data is how much more will people pay 
for certain things if it's aligned with their values. And for household everyday items, the number across the world that's coming in at about 8%. So they'll tolerate an 8% price hike or price differential in order to find things that are aligned with their values. So you do your own math on that and figure out how much that could mean to your bottom line just for changing the way you think about people. My favorite example of that is Oreo cookies because that's my favorite cookie. And I figure if I keep using this as an example, one day Mr. Oreo will call me and offer me a sponsorship. Oreo cookies, last year, 2022 data made $4 billion in sales. $4 billion times 8% is $320 million. $320 million just for saying, oh, Oreo cookie fans, they value this, this, and this. Let's start talking about that in our social media. Let's um, change the phrasing on some of the packaging that we have just to highlight those things. Let's uh, think about sponsorships and community engagement in a way that relates back to those values. And so the same set of techniques holds true for pet food. Once you know the values you need to speak into, you just do everything you can to make sure that the ideas, the strategies, the thoughts you're putting forward align back to those values. Of the 56 values, here's my example for pet food folks. The one value that I'm gonna talk about on stage in more depth, but I'm gonna share with you here just as a little bit of a teaser. One value that scores really high for pet food shoppers, decision makers, pet parents, is the value of personal responsibility. Now, of the 56 values, this is a value that, as we talked about earlier, there's lots of chocolates, different kinds of chocolate bar in that pile of data. But the personal responsibility that these folks are looking for has to do with being integrally involved in making decisions for themselves. So pet food manufacturers, how can you let consumers feel like they have a say in your product? If you're a smaller group and you can do this, can they bulk order online and choose some of the ingredients that get to go into their particular delivery? Like, I'm going to buy enough pet food for the next year and please add extra vitamin D and this and some of that to my order. If you could do a personalized kind of product for this audience, they would love it. And if that's outside the bounds of actual possibility, anything else you can do that helps them understand that this is their choice. They're in the driver's seat. They are the deciders. It's not you saying, here's what you get. It's them saying, here's what I want. So just knowing that flip, think about how you phrase everything. Think about, you know, if you've done, as I know you have, some consumer research before you launch your next product into the market, let everybody know how much consumer research you did before you put it into the market. You say, you know what? We talked to a billion people around the world and they said to us, they want this, 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 and this. So that's what we did because it's all about you, my friends. You're the ones who help us decide how to make our food the best pet food possible. Thank you for your help. And now it's available for you in the stores. So you just made it about them. Don't make it about you. What do brands love to do? They make it about themselves. Oh, we're so smart. We're so environmentally friendly. We're so sustainable. What these people want to hear is that it's all about them. So find a way to make that at least some part of how you're speaking into that market. So before I was speaking for the marketers, and now I feel like I'm hearing the C-suite going, this is very counter to the way that business used to be done. Because there's very much a hands-off approach to being a business entity that has been pretty ingrained, I think, especially in the U.S. I can really only speak to the U.S., but that businesses should be 
kind of value neutral monoliths. Like they are there to make money. They give you a product. You take mm. the product. End of story. There is no story. But that is simply from what you're saying and from what I've seen in the shifts just in the brands that I, you know, more brands are willing to come out and say, this is what we believe. This is where we're putting our money. This is what we're standing behind. It sounds like that is not a good idea anymore or that you simply can't because there are too many companies putting their values out there that consumers are now paying attention to. And then they're turning to you and going, okay, what's your deal? Yeah. So how do you help business owners or those in the higher echelons who have to decide to make these business shifts? How do you make them less reticent to jump into the fray, so to speak, because that's probably what it feels like. If you've been running a business for so long and been like, look, internally, we do things this way, we make a good product, that's all consumers want. And now all of a sudden they're being told that's not enough. It's not enough to make a good product. People are not even going to look at your good product if you can't give them a story and a reason to look at your product. How do you make them less reticent and more willing to make that shift and start thinking about something in a completely different way? That's an amazing question. And it comes up more often these days than it ever has before. And there's a newsflash here. It's not all about profit anymore. We all grew up at a time going through business school where it was drummed into us. The purpose of a business is to increase shareholder value. Like I should have had that tattooed on my forehead. Maybe then the profs would have given me a break on it. Yes, I get it. That's the purpose of a business, but it's not the case anymore. It's now to find the intersection of profit and purpose. To do something while you're making money, you got to do both. You can't just do stuff and make no money or you're not going to be there. You can't just make money and not make things happen in the world or you're going to get flamed on Twitter and things are going to go really, really bad. And you can't fake it. You can't values wash by standing up and throwing out some poetry and saying, this is what we stand for when you actually don't. There's lots and lots of cases of companies being caught out trying to look like they have some values when they, in fact, actually don't. So how do I help the C-suite? Well, you know what? We built this for a C-suite audience because the love language of a C-suite audience is data. And taking what we're talking about here, which is this messy, irrational, illogical, nonsensical thing called human behavior that doesn't lend itself well to spreadsheets and data and turning it into their love language of data so that you can now sit down and go, okay, I get it. Values are important. And I don't have to just rely on some creative guy coming in here and going, I think the most important thing is this and that and the other. There's data. And it says, this is what my customers value. And if you really want to do this properly, you look at all the different stakeholder groups that an organization will impact. Yes, shareholders, because they're still one. You got to think about your customers and your customers of tomorrow. So the people who are going to buy your stuff. Think about your employees and the employees of tomorrow, the people who are going to make it possible. You got to think about your vendors, your partners, the other folks in the chain that you rely on in order to get stuff to happen. And the fifth group is the communities that you're impacting with the work that you do. If you take all five of those stakeholder groups and understand what their core values are, what drives each of those groups, and then you think about it like a series of five interlocking Venn circles, and you find the place where they all overlap, and they will, because there's only 56 values that drive us, you'll find two or three values that can now be a North Star metric for you. 
And as long as you keep making every decision for this organization in terms of every aspect of your operations and your strategy and your fulfillment, everything you're doing, based on those two or three North Star values, every single stakeholder group will be considered and seen in the way that you run the organization. So this whole big scary thing about how do we be values-driven? How do we be purpose-led? How do we show people that we actually do care about something? It doesn't have to be all light and fluffy and fuzzy. It can be as empirically sound as any other business metric now that we have data. That's my biggest dream is that we can unleash this in a way where the largest organizations on earth end up being data-led and values-driven. And here's why. Be good for them. They'll make some money. I'll make some money, but I don't need a private jet. This is not why I'm in this. Here's the real problem. Right now, in boardrooms around the world, we sit together and say, we have a group of people here. We need to understand them because they're going to be a target audience for us or an employee group or whoever. We, we look at groups of people and try and sort them out and figure them out. And we say to ourselves, okay, well, are they male or female, rich or poor, young or old, gay or straight, black or white, married, single? We apply all those labels innocently because it's what we've been taught to do. But what that does is it says to each of us and to the world that that's the right way to look at people, that the right way to understand people is with demographic labels because it's what we know how to do. Now we know it doesn't work. We only got a 10.5% similarity, remember, and for every one of these groups. So it's not really doing us any favors from that perspective. But worse, it's perpetuating stereotypes about what does it mean to be male or female, young or old, rich or poor, gay or straight, black or white? Because we take that label that we apply to a group and we say, okay, my market is 85% female. Let's go make it pink and use cursive text and you start making stereotypical leaps because of course you do. You're looking at people in a stereotypical way that is absolutely inaccurate. And then trying to extrapolate from that, what should we do with this information? It's far harder than the trouble you have trying to understand how to extrapolate strategy out of values. It's way more difficult and dicey to be doing it based on demographics because they're so freaking inaccurate. And those leaps, those stereotypes... You know, if you don't think this is still happening, go into the toy store and look at the pink toys and the blue toys. It's happening all around us in ways we can't even put our finger on sometimes. What we're doing as we continue to do this innocent thing called demographic profiling that doesn't work and messes things up is we're fueling the fires of sexism and ageism and racism and homophobia, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are demographically fueled issues. Now, I'm not saying that switching to a valuegraphic perspective on the world is going to make those things go away. Humans are humans after all. But why feed the fire by continuing to convince each other that this is correct, that we should look at a group of people and try and figure out how many of them are men and how many of them are women? Why? What does that lead us to? It leads us to nothing except stereotypes. Rare exceptions. Everybody wants to fight about this, but what if it's a product that's just for women? Yeah, of course. But still, stop it with the stereotyping. Here's a better way. Let's look at what's in the inside of people, not what's on the outside of people. Let's see what's in their hearts, what's driving them, what they care about so much that it gets them out of bed every day and makes them do everything that they do all day long. If we could start to build a world full of products and services and brands that are based on what we actually care about in our hearts, I think it would be a much much better world. That's why this is really important.
I can't think of any better way to wrap up our conversation than on that note. That is phenomenal. And if this is a preview of what your talk is going to be like at Pet Food Forum, I think everybody is really in for something. And uh, hopefully we will see everybody there. I really appreciate you speaking with me today, David, as we continue to try to figure out how to understand where pet owners and consumers in general are coming from and making it part of your business strategy and knowing that this is something we need to figure out in order to succeed in business. I think this way of coming at that particular question and what we're trying to do is absolutely fascinating. Before we go, I want to do a little plug. Where can people find more information about you and the Value Graphics Project? So there's a couple of things you can do. Um, I do have a new book that came out uh, in November. It's called The Death of Demographics because it's a nice dramatic title. I don't think we should kill them. As I've already explained, I think we should just like use them properly. So we don't need to really kill them, but that doesn't make a great book title. I don't think we should kill demographics. That's not a good book title. So it's called The Death of Demographics. And in there, there's actually a quiz people can use to survey their own CRM and start to at least dip their toe in the water around a values-driven way of looking at people and a whole bunch of other information and good stuff in there. So that's available on Amazon. The website that's about my speaking work and my work as a writer is davidallisoninc.com. The research company has their own website and that's valuegraphics.com. And then on social media, I live on LinkedIn. So I'm not hard to find. Just type my name in and there you'll see me. And I'd love anybody who's hearing this or is going to be at Pet Food Farm or hears this after Pet Food Farm, who knows, please come and join me on LinkedIn and be part of the conversation. We share free stuff on there all the time. I hope it is obvious that I'm on a mission here that's bigger than just selling research. And so the more people who um, are values warriors right next to me, the better. Perfect. Once more, David Allison will be speaking on what value graphics can tell you about your pet food consumers as our opening Tuesday keynote at Pet Food Forum 2023 being held May 1 through 3 in Kansas City, Missouri. You can find more information about Pet Food Forum at PetFoodForumEvents.com, and we hope to see you there. That is it for this episode of Trending Pet Food. You can find us on PetFoodIndustry.com, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at Trending Pet Food Podcast. And if you want to chat or have any feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to drop me an email, podcast at petfoodindustry.com. And of course, thanks again to our sponsor, AFB International, the premier supplier of palatins to pet food companies worldwide, offering off-the-shelf and custom solutions that make pet food, treats, and supplements taste great. Once again, I'm Lindsay Beaton, your host and editor of Pet Food Industry Magazine, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for tuning in. 